know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. The Effective Case Management with Human Trafficking Survivors course is ready, and I'm so excited. It's opened yesterday. Man, I feel like a weight has been lifted. Right? I know. I'm enrolling only 20 people, up to 20 people at a reduced price. And then, because I want to kind of get feedback from them um, and then make some changes. And then as soon as possible, open it up to everybody, hopefully even before the end of the month. So I want to take the time and kind of use this as my commercial to just talk about the course for a minute, because that is what I have been involved in for the last, I don't know, several months. So um, in the course, we're going to talk about roles and functions and duties of case managers. Um, because, you know, I understand being having been a case manager, it's like there's three things that you kind of worry about all the time. And it has to do with knowledge, skills, and kind of your experience or your authenticity. So first of all, you're kind of always questioning, like, am I, do I know what I'm supposed to know? Because <laughs> a lot of times, you know, people get funding and they're like, okay, now we're going to work with survivors of human trafficking. Here you go, like figure it out. So it's like not a good idea to be like on the job learning and, you know, because clients don't really get the best. Um the other thing is that do, am I connecting like the theories, the knowledge base, the framework? Am I doing the most effective work? Are my skills what they should be? Is case management with survivors the same as case management with anybody? And um, the answer is no. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, the process is kind of the same, but the ingredients are kind of different. The emphasis is kind of different. Um and then people are afraid, like I haven't had that experience myself of having been trafficked. So what do I really have to offer? And so, you know, we talk about that in the course, uh, because a lot of times you've had experiences, not that experience. You'll never know what it's like to have been a, a victim, but you have had similar deeper experiences like stigma. Maybe you faced, maybe you faced depression you know, maybe you faced invisibility and those things, while you haven't had that experience, those things you can join on, you can connect on. And so we'll talk about ethics and values and standards and competencies so that you're well prepared. I'm going to walk hand in hand through it. It is a 12 week course. Uh, it probably takes about two hours a week commitment. We're going to talk about theories, which is super boring to everybody, but it's going to be interesting. <laughs> you know, we have to talk, we have to root it in uh, frameworks. And I'm going to talk about models and I'm going to teach people about how to prepare to see 
uh, clients and then how to engage them effectively and how to assess and what questions should I be asking? What should I be looking for? And then based on the assessment, what the intervention should be and um, evaluating our practice and then how to effectively disengage. So I, I know I took a lot of time, but I think, I mean, I'm very excited and I think people who come out of this course are going to know a lot more about how to effectively engage um, survivor clients. So, Oh, most definitely. I think it's a really thorough course. Uh, You seem to have covered everything and, you know, not having this course or not having a case management course that focuses specifically on human trafficking survivors. I think it's presented a gap in the system. So I'm glad you're filling that gap. I think that's one thing we can say came out of this uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had some extra time on your hands. And I don't know if you remember the last time you had some some extra time on your hands. Oh, yes, 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 I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I uh, actually uh, was involved in some social justice change. Mm-hmm. So that that was cool. Like yeah. Otherwise known as a shitstorm. Yeah, you <laughs> created a press conference, put people, you know, on the hot seat, um, upset the media while the media was was there covering it. Yeah, so. yeah, that was funny. I was really. Um, <laughs> I remember there was a trial, a fourteen year old girl, and I remember the both the print media and the news media talked about her being a a child prostitute or her having. Uh, alleged sex with an adult and it's like oh well wait a minute like if somebody who's 14 is not having sex with something we call that molestation i mean just calling her a child prostitute people in her neighborhood her read that and there's no such thing at least in the state of ohio there's no such thing as a child prostitute right 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 and so i was just so yeah upset that i thought no we need to educate you know, the print media, the news media, but it was kind of awkward when you call the print media and the news media to a press conference to talk about them. (laughs) But it all worked out because um, they do uh, responsible journalism now in my community. Absolutely. I think uh, it it might not have felt great, but, but they certainly learned and, and changed. And I mean, what more can, can you ask, you know, someone, so it's, it's all good now. Yeah. You have to, you have to speak up and help people do the right thing. And then, you know, journalists, they have a lot of power and they can paint the story however they would like to. And if they're ignorant, then they will paint a story that stigmatizes people. And we just can't, we just can't do that anymore. So uh, not today. No, not in my community. Um, So anyway, get to the guest. So (laughs) (laughs) our guest today is David Corliss. He was actually on episode 36. Uh, I think it was called Data for Good. He runs a program called PeaceWorks and I don't want to give it all away, but he's a really fascinating guy. He just did another really cool study. So he's going to talk about those findings. And I want you to really listen for two things. Uh, in his conversation, listen uh, to his conversation about human trafficking and the pandemic and what he has found in human trafficking and some other social problems. And then his conversation on how historic slavery and modern day slavery are connected statistically. 
So without further ado, my interview with David. Welcome back to the Emancipation Nation podcast. We have David Corliss back again. He was on before and did an amazing job. Look for that past recording where he talks about his organization, Peacework. And they are an organization of researchers, people who do data analysis, people who can help you uh, provide what you need in grants and to potential funders. They take their knowledge and skills and they help organizations uh, tell their message in a way that is factual, is data-driven, is transparent. So they do amazing, amazing work. And David has been recently researching uh, how COVID is affecting the work and particularly human trafficking. So welcome back, David. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always great to talk to you because I feel like um, you and your colleagues have so much brain power in this in this space that you're able to help organizations, you know, make a difference. So, what is happening in the world of you know COVID nineteen and human trafficking and all that? Tell us what you what you did. Well, one of the things we've noticed in COVID nineteen is there's, there's been a lot of disproportional impact. You know, it's no surprise that the same people get hurt worse by fill-in-the-blank. Poverty and homelessness and all of these other factors are being hurt hurt especially worse during the COVID-19 pandemic. But these are some of the same factors that are drivers of human trafficking. So what we did was we looked at all the different things that have been identified in previous analytic studies as risk factors for human trafficking. And here's a quick list. Poverty, we know that. It turns out that affluence is also. For human trafficking to exist as a business, it involves finding both rich perpetrators and poor victims. And so where those two are close together are areas where we tend to find more human trafficking. Mm -hmm. We know that homelessness is a risk uh, in human trafficking. We know that race is a big factor. We've also found that history of slavery in the past, I'm talking the 1900s and before, we find those places, they have higher than expected levels of human trafficking reports today. Now that's based on the reports of the Polaris, uh, the National Call Center. Mm -hmm. So what we did is we looked at all the risk factors. Now, some of them, they're not gonna be affected. Yes, having a long-term history of having problems with human trafficking, that is a risk factor, but the history didn't change. Mm -hmm. But other things did. Poverty. Turns out affluence. The people who are at the top of the economy, the rich have gotten richer during COVID-19 as the poor have gotten poorer. So maybe you've heard things about, despite the pandemic and the recession and so on, that... um, uh, the stock market and certain measures of the stock market are reaching new highs. Yes. That's actually one of the drivers because this is an economic crime. It is a business. And so with businesses doing well, people are putting investment into this business and expanding their business. It's just that this business happens to be the worst business to plague planet earth, human Mm -hmm. trafficking. So you're saying is as businesses strengthen human trafficking has gotten worse. So the thing is that uh, people are, the the rich or the affluent are making a lot of money. They have more disposable income. 
Yes. They're still spending it in the ways that they spend it. And one of those is is purchasing you. I'm not talking about all people who are affluent, but that small, slim fraction, mm-hmm. a sliver of people who are engaging in this terrible business, their stock has gone up just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And they have more money to invest in human trafficking. Wow, that's interesting. And so what about homelessness? Homelessness has been a very, very interesting story. We know that new homelessness is a big driver of human trafficking, that the traffickers prey on people who have housing insecurity. Mm -hmm. But homelessness in COVID-19 has been very strange because with moratoriums on uh, evictions and foreclosures, initially, initially, the COVID-19 pandemic reduced new homelessness. It reduced housing insecurity, and that Mm -hmm. meant fewer people to feed into the human trafficking system. Mm -hmm. But that was short-lived. And as time has gone on, we've seen, now you can't get evicted, but your landlord doesn't have to renew your lease, Mm -hmm. or it can change the price of a lease. So as the pandemic has gone on for a year, initially, homelessness wasn't much of a factor. It was actually places that had high homelessness in the past weren't affected as much. But now we're seeing a spike in homelessness. We're seeing seeing a spike as moratoriums drop off, expire. We're seeing a spike as people are evicted because they've lost their job. They haven't been able to uh, pay their rent and they couldn't be evicted, but then the lease expired and then they were kicked out. And so we're just starting to see a spike in homelessness in new homelessness, and that's becoming a new driver of human trafficking. So for people who are working at human trafficking detection and prevention, mm-hmm. people who have just been evicted as a long-term fallout from COVID-19 are people especially at risk right now and for the next four to six months. That's very interesting. And are there any other risk factors that you found that you saw COVID-19 affect? We know that um, that risk is a factor. I'm sorry, that race is a factor, that persons of color have been disproportionately impacted. Mm-hmm. Um, we find that there's uh, concentrations, uh, especially in uh, high poverty areas um, and in urban centers. We also see an increase, and it's harder to detect, where we're starting to see an increase in rural poverty. And that's a driver of human trafficking also. So while we see fewer victims in the suburbs, in very, very poor urban cores, and in places where there's strong rural poverty, um, for example, I've been working with um, Christy Bartman in Eyes Up Appalachia. Appalachia, Ohio is an Mm -hmm. area where there's a lot of rural poverty. And that's a place where human trafficking has been increasing as well. The COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated these two opposing areas, one with very dense population, one with in urban centers, one very rural. And those are places where human trafficking is sadly gaining strength today. That's interesting. What about, you mentioned the history of slavery and how does that affect what's going on today and people who are affected by COVID-19 or by human trafficking? There's a couple of factors. We don't see much of a change from COVID-19, but it's certainly an impact and it's something to watch out for. One of the things we found 
is that areas that have a long-term history of legal slavery in the 1900s and before, and by the way, that's not just the southeast corner of the country. Um, Hawaii, for example, actually had legal slavery before they became part of the United States in the late 1800s. And I'm not sure, I'm a mathematician, I'm not a sociologist, but we see something like a sociological factor, a societal inherited uh, acceptance of factors that lead to more human trafficking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Hawaii is one of those places where there's a lot of human trafficking today, where there is this memory and this societal undercurrent. There are some places that see more human trafficking today than others. For example, one of the things that early statistical analysis was found, had found, is that if you look at the confirmed victims in the Polaris reports, by state, find the number per capita, it turns out that the percentage of people legally enslaved and recorded at the 1860 census, after you've looked at race and economics, the number of people legally enslaved at the percentage of people legally enslaved in 1860 is a predictor of the per capita human trafficking reports today. Wow. But once you get past just the money, Uh, we see a direct connection to legal slavery in the 1900s. That means those places where that has happened, where there is that history. And it turns out Nevada is one of them. Now, that was way out west Mm -hmm. in the early 1800s, but there was a history of slavery there in in the past. Um, That affects Hawaii also. And Hawaii, of course, was an independent country before they became part of the United States. And they had legal slavery until they joined. In fact, they had to end slavery and their own little local slave trade when they joined the United States in the late 1880s. And those places still have higher levels of human trafficking today. And do you think it's because of this, this undercurrent, this continuing sort of underground cultural phenomenon that has has lasted? Yes. We're seeing certain things. We know that human trafficking exists along interstate highways. It's a risk factor. We find more there. Mm -hmm. But those interstate highways were built along old trunk routes, um, you know, early truck routes. They were built along horse and, uh, you know, wagon routes. Mm -hmm. And so the same infrastructure that supported human trafficking in the 1800s is still supporting human trafficking today. Wow. That slavery at the so-called emancipation. Emancipation never happened, folks. That's why the Mm -hmm. abolitionists are still working today. Mm -hmm. But at at official emancipation, slavery didn't disappear. It went underground. Mm -hmm. And that predisposition still exists in those locations today. Wow. That is mind-blowing. I mean, people suspect it, but you've actually done the stats and you can show it. So. That, I think, is amazing. So what else? Did did the study show anything else? Those are the main findings of the study. Um, The recommendations then um, are to to look for these locations where there's uh, more human trafficking. One of the things about the study is that it was at a state level. Mm -hmm. And more studies are needed with more local data. For example, in Ohio it's possible to do a county by county study. 
We've got the reports at a county level. So we need to have more local studies to say that these kinds of places, well, that helps, but we need to have a better focus on uh, the individual uh, locations uh, where there's the most human trafficking. Um, mm -hmm. Beyond that, uh, public awareness, getting the word out, understanding that human trafficking needs to be a part of COVID response. And that means, that means advocacy. That means legislative action. That means talking to the people in this in your state capital, talking to the people in Washington. When we formulate these COVID response packages, and we all are, human trafficking needs to be part of the picture. Mm -hmm. Because we know human trafficking has been made worse by this. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about getting past the COVID-19 pandemic, when we talk about putting programs in place that are going to respond to the pandemic and alleviate its effects. Human trafficking is one of those effects. And that means human trafficking needs to be a part of state, local, county, COVID level response plan. Excellent. Isn't he just a fascinating guy? Oh, he is, for sure. Yeah, so I think he did his research accessing data from the Players Project in Washington, D.C., and they collect data across all the 50 states. And he analyzed that, all the calls that were coming in, um, and he looked at the higher percentage of slave states or communities that had a higher percentage of slaves and really didn't want to free the slaves, and then compared them to what he sees in terms of the spikes uh, in reported uh, instances of human trafficking. I think that's a little really interesting kind of study. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, as an evaluator, we can look at this a number of ways. Um, one, those are only, you know, the reported instances of human trafficking. So you could say that there are other factors maybe prompting people to report in those states. Um, or for some reason, they may just be more aware and more enlightened there. Yeah, right. I mean, there could be, and that's a good thing, but there could be uh, more advocates, more assertive advocates in those states that are promoting awareness and people know the hotline number more often, or maybe those are just bigger communities and then likely there would be more calls uh, to the Players Project uh, hotline number, or maybe, you know, there are increased awareness, less awareness. I mean, there are lots and lots of limitations to every study, but still a very cool study. So, but he did talk about like historic slavery and spikes or increases in slavery in those very communities. Why do you think that that might be the case still? Uh, you know, I, I'm not totally sure. I have to be honest, but, you know, I did think about this a lot after listening and he did talk about, you know, old perceptions sort of lingering um, but I, I have to be honest, I, I do not know. Uh, what do you think? Yes. I mean, those underground markets and perspectives still have to be in existence. Of course, you know, how people value other people value money, they still have to be operating. So when people are oppressed and opportunities are blocked, people figure out ways to survive. And if that means exploiting somebody else, then they will, um, and they will devalue particular segments of the population or whatever it may be to make it easier to exploit. So if I remove your humanity, if I begin to see you as something less than human, 
then it's easier for me to exploit you. So if we want to change society, then we have to change the value of those that we have historically oppressed and devalued like women, uh, LBGTQ communities, people of color, people with disabilities, uh, foreign born populations, uh, poor people, which by the way, happens to be those most at risk for human trafficking. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.